What's up, everybody? Welcome to uh, What's in Your Glass. I'm your host, Carmelo Anthony. Let's welcome today's guest. You know him as former, let me, let me get that right, former NBA player all-around legend who recently announced his retirement on what I would say was, was an incredible 15-year career. One of the best players in the Duke history, Duke University history, uh, and the current host of the uh, the Old Man in the Three podcast with our friends. We got mutual friends at Cadence 13. Please welcome to the show, third to last standing member from class, high school class 2002, uh, JJ Reddick on today's show. What's up, Jay? Hello. Thanks, man. This is, uh, I feel like this has been a long time coming for me to get on this show. You know, <laughs> we've, uh, we've tried to make this happen. I'm excited to be here. I'm, I'm happy to, to chat with you for a bit. Um, but it's, it's good to see you, man. Mine's always good, man. Always good. Um, I, I know we was, we was, we was joking about it before we jumped on live real quick, um, about retirement life, but we go, we go, we go, we go to get, we go jump into that. We go, we go get into that. Cause I, I really need to know, uh, some ins and outs and some, some little tidbits about how to deal with that. Not right now, but for the, for the, for the future. Um, no, but I, I just want to, Jay, what's going on? Talk to me, man. What's, what's, what's new? What's in your world? What's going on? What's, what's happening? How's retired? How's retired life? Um, how's golf? You know, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure y'all did golfing. I'm trying to golf, man. The retired life, um, I, I would describe myself in a, in like a transition phase, you know, I'm transitioning out of a 15 year career where my entire day, even in the off season was very regimented and very scheduled. I, I took my craft very seriously. And now I'm in a period where I'm giving myself some time to do basically two things. And those two things are spend time with my kids and my wife. So lots of school drop-offs, lots of school pickups and golf. And the goal with golf, I'm a 14 handicap right now. The goal with golf this time next year, I need to be like a six handicap. And then the following oh, year. So you, you say you're, you're 14 now? Yeah, I'm a 14. You need to be like, this time that you need to be at a six. Six, yes. Okay. okay. And the following year, in two years, I would need to be like a two. But I'm, you know, Melo, you know this. Like when we work on our craft and we get obsessed with something, like we do it, you know? So for me to go work on my golf game, it's it's sort of replacing what I did for so long, which is get in the gym and work work on my game. Speaking about retirement, the amount of work and the effort that it took for you to be who you are, the player that 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 you became in, in this league, I want to give you your flowers for that. Uh, I know you was a prime example of of what just being, you know, the 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 ultimate competitor. Like, is you was the ultimate competitor, no night in and night out. So I want to give you your flowers for that, and I'm also excited uh, to drink some wine with you and play some golf, and hopefully play some golf, uh, and, and 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 just let me and you fight it out. To the end, but uh, let's let's start with retirement, man. I, I know that was a huge, a huge decision. Uh, who who got the first? I want to know who got the first phone call. I mean, obviously, I I would think that your wife got the first call. Hopefully, she got the first call. But what was that? What was that call like? Well, it's something that I discussed with her uh, for for years now, really for years. Um, and you'll you'll have this decision to make at some point too, and. It's an incredibly nuanced decision, especially given the fact that I could have had a job this year. Um, I had teams in free agency that called, and I told them in you know late July, early August, whenever that was, I, I said, I'm not ready to make any sort of commitment. 
you know, give me some time. And I relied on my wife. I relied on some very close friends. I relied on my parents. Um, I think the two hardest calls I had to make, because I wanted, there was about five or six people I wanted to tell prior to uh, the announcement coming out that one was Coach K and the other was your your guy, our guy, CP. Um, okay. And the CP call was probably the hardest call I had to make. Because um, I, 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 you know, I, I look back on my career and all the great players I played with and I know how much winning means to him. And I just would have loved to have won a championship with him. It would have meant so much. Uh, all, any championship would have, but winning with him would have meant a lot. Um, so he was, he was probably the, 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 the friend and the, like the, the, uh, the other player that I call that was the most difficult call. I mean, you say you was thinking about this for a while. What was, uh, what brought you to that decision? Cause it had to, like something had to happen or was it just the, the grit and the grind or, <laughs> or, or, or the body was just saying, you know, it's yeah. time to go, or it was just more so like, you know, it's, it's time to focus on something else. I, I didn't gave the game everything I could give it. And it's time for me to focus on the next phase of my life. What was that? How hard was that decision to make? It started when I started having children. I've got two boys. They're now seven and five. But from the time I was eight years old till I was 30 and I had my first kid, my entire world was centered around basketball. And so my kids changed my perspective. And as I got older, those road trips to Cleveland and Indianapolis got more and more difficult, Right. Because again, you think about time and the value of time and I just, they just got harder. And then a few things happened. The pandemic happened. So I was away from them last summer for two months in the bubble. I spent this season in New Orleans. They stayed in Brooklyn. Uh, my son started kindergarten in 2020. So we wanted him to, to be at the school that he's going to be at for the next, hopefully, you know, 11, 12 years. And then my body started to fail me a little bit. And it was the first time in my life I had to face my own sort of basketball mortality. And it was, it was a hard thing to sort of go through this past season. But the, the other part of this, and, and I've talked to enough uh, people who, I don't want to say get burnt out, but I know this is a thing. Like for, you mentioned this competitiveness. For me to com- be in the NBA and be a good player for 15 years, I had to have competitive stamina. I had to be good every night. I couldn't waltz into a game and not put everything into a game. Now, some games I didn't play well, but every night I put everything I had into a game. That competitive stamina, like I'm still competitive, but that that sort of ability to do that night in and night out as I got older, it got harder and harder. Absolutely. That's just reality. Your body, Absolutely. your body can't always do what you want it to do. So the combination of all that stuff led me to come to this decision. I wanted, you know, I, I knew this in November of last year. I wanted 2021 to be my last season. I didn't want it to turn out the way I, it turned out. And so that was really what took me so long to decide between June 7th when I flew back from Dallas and September 21st when I announced. It was just coming to that point of letting go, letting go of something that's been, I mean, you know this, so important to your identity. My whole identity for so long has been as a basketball player. And that's a hard thing to let go of. Why, what's, let me, let me ask you this, because there's so many things that we, that we do as professionals and, and fun things on, I mean, locker room, I mean, you know, flying, I mean, you know, being around the guys on the road trips and dinners and just enjoying the shoot arounds, you know, even though as much as we hate shoot arounds with it, it was still, you know, those are, those are the, some of the small things that we're going to miss. 
Like, what is it? What is the one thing that, that you're that you're not going to miss? I would say the travel is really good in the sense that we fly chartered planes. We get to hang with our with our homies and play cards and drink wine on the plane. Like, that's all fun. Uh, we stay in really nice hotels uh, other than certain, you know, maybe one or two cities. I'm not going to name those cities, but you know who they are. <laughs> and and so it's not that it's the travel is bad. Again, it's it's the 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 requirement to to travel to play and be away from the people we love the most. And because of the way this this past season, we're really season and a half, the bubble, and then this this past season with all the protocols it made it impossible to see my family. So I lost all that time and it's time that I feel like I can't get back. So I'm trying to make that time up right now a little bit. I would say this mellow, like I know what I'm going to miss. There's three things. I know what I'm going to miss. I'm going to miss, I'm going to miss the performance being on, being on stage. There's nothing like playing in front of 20,000 people. I'm going to miss the competition playing at the highest level. There's no basketball league that's better than the NBA. There's arguably no athletes better than NBA athletes. And then the third thing is what you were kind of touching on. It's the camaraderie, the collaboration yeah. that's required in a team sport. And, and the relationships that I've had in my career and the time that I've spent with my teammates and my coaches and my trainers and all that stuff, that's what I value almost more than anything else. Anything I did on the court was those moments, that time spent with everybody that ultimately became a part of my, my story and my journey. What are you, what are you not going to miss? Media day, media, dude. I swear to God, I swear to God. I I called. I got a uh, my homie works for the uh, Spurs, and I called him at like four thirty on media day just to tell him. <laughs> I'm like, I realized today that I did this shit for 15 years. I will not miss media day. I will not miss training camp, and <laughs> I I will not miss a Cleveland Memphis back to back. I won't miss that at all. That's a tough back to back. I, I can tell you that. That's a tough, that's a tough back to back. But let's 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 transition a little bit to to NBA. I, I would say. Um, so so as we you know as we know you you were drafted by Orlando in in, in 06. And if anyone's like heard you speak about Stan Van Gundy, like they know how much he meant to you. You know as as you know to your professional career. I, I would say, what was it like for all of it to come back full circle in in New Orleans with him? It was great, actually. Um, you know, I didn't, I, I, again, I, I didn't play my best this past season. And I, I'm not making excuses. I just didn't play my best. I, my body wasn't right. And dealing with all the shit with family and COVID was hard. It was hard. But I wish I could have been better in my last year with him. Stan was so great for me early in my career. Um, he really taught me about personal accountability and how important that is in the NBA. Um, he taught me how to be a professional. And in some ways, it, it wasn't that I wasn't a worker before. It, it, he drove me to be maniacal because I didn't play at all that first year with him. And I remember halfway through that season, and I had played the victim card a little bit to myself. I talked to my dad. I, you know, I talked to my friends. My brother lived, lived with me that year. Oh, you should be playing. You should be playing. But at some point that season, I was like, yo, we're going to win like 50-some games. We're going to be a top three seed in the East. We might make the finals. I'm not playing. Like, maybe it's something I'm doing. Right. Maybe I actually need to be better. And right. if I, and if I, I, I could, I think if I, in a different environment, I might have had more success early on in my career but I wouldn't have had the success I had on the back end 
without having gone through that early in my career. Makes sense. What was it like playing with the, a young talent such as Zion, right? And, and, and I say that because it, there's so many, there's so much young talent that comes into our league, but it's only, a, it's only a, a few that comes in with that. What was it like playing with him? Or just playing with a young talent like that? I would say I actually played with two transcendent stars this past season, Zion and then Luca. And I think both those guys have the potential to be an MVP, be the best player in the league one day. Zion is special um, because his game is so different. Zion's game is, I'm going to line you up and I'm going to bully you <laughs> and I'm going to bet that you cannot stop me from making a layup. Like, think about that. Everybody yeah. talks about the era we're in with three-point shooting, pace and space. We didn't even have a spacing last year with the Pelicans. Right. We didn't even have good spacing. He's saying, I'm coming right at you. You can't stop me. Right. And I, there's only really maybe one other guy in the league that does that to that level, and that's Giannis. And, you know, and his game's even evolved a little bit more. So at at, at Zion's age, what, what he is, you know, 21 years old last year, um, I'm just in awe of of him as a player. I'm also, you know, I, you know this, to be a, a great player in this league, you need talent and you need smarts. Right. You have to be able to think the game. And I was always impressed in all the conversations I would have with Zion on and off the court, how, how much of a sponge he was, how much he wanted to learn, and how much he already knew intuitively uh, in terms of uh, attacking defenses and, and rotations. He just, he just got it. And, um, you know, I think the biggest thing with him is, is his health. If he, can, right. if he can figure out how to do what a lot of guys have to do, and you've, you've been through this in your career as well, we, you, at some point you have to take your body seriously. And you have to put as much into your body as you are putting into your your work on the court. And when he does that, you know he's an MVP. That's how good he is. Yeah, and you and you and I, to, I totally agree with that. You you was you was able to have opportunities, several opportunities to play with a lot of young talent. I, I would say. I mean, you from Joel to Ben to Zion to Luca, uh, <clears throat> Bi, you know Brandon, and I still being a being a young talent. How do you see the game has evolved though? Because I mean, we I've seen the game change and evolve maybe three times since I've since I've came into this league, and now we're about to see the game evolve. It's going it's about to go to another place. I don't know what place that is, but it's going to go somewhere else. But how do you see that that game evolve with the young talent that we have in, in our league? The way I think about the evolution of the game is each position. And it, let, let's probably put positions into buckets. Scoring guard, wings, and big guys. Mm -hmm. And within each of those buckets, you have different roles people may fill. You may have like a Jimmy Butler or a B.I., two-way wings that can facilitate an offense. Or you may have guys like Jay Crowder who can switch and play multiple positions and spread the floor. Um, but those weren't the positions in the buckets we had when we first came in the league. Not at all. You played a position, and that position did one thing. And right. so now all those positions at times are inter intermingled. But there was not the – there were certainly scoring guards, but the, the one position has changed a ton, and the five position has changed a ton. Right. Because the five position used to be, hey, we're going to throw you ball. I mean, Dwight Howard used to get 
<laughs> 20 post touches a game when I played it with him five, in Orlando. Five, yeah, turn five. five. And and now he's had to he's had to evolve and adapt. I'm going to be a defender, a rim runner, and a rebounder. Yeah. Um, and then you have, you know, within each position, of course, uh, you have your your anomalies, your unicorns, your Joel Embiid's, your, you know, your Jokic's, your Steph Curry's. Um, but those guys are, they're just so rare. When you get past the top five or 10 players, I think there's a decent drop-off. There's, yeah. you know, there's there's guys that are just so dominant and so good uh, at each position, and they're they're unicorns. This is a two part question, and, and taking into account uh, like all the teams that you've played for, but you know, the, for, for you know the teams you played for, the fans, the lifestyle, uh, the cities, the food, et cetera. Like, what which which was your favorite? Favorite team or favorite city? <laughs> favorite team. Favorite team. I mean, listen, you don't live in Brooklyn, Philly. I mean, you don't live yeah. in some, LA. some pretty good city. LA. Yeah. LA. Dallas. Like, you don't, you don't yeah. live in some smoke. <laughs> what was it? What, what, what was your favorite team? And, and out of the whole NBA, which is your favorite city to go and play in? All right. Favorite. I'm gonna actually. I'm gonna answer my own my own question to myself about favorite city to live in as well. So favorite team, I would say, were the Clipper, my Clippers teams. Okay. You know, I was in the prime of my career. Um, played in a ton of big games. Playing with really smart players. The chemistry on the court was just amazing. You know, we 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 just had it dialed in. Um, LA was a great place to pl- to live as well. My favorite city I lived in was New Orleans. I love New Orleans. I think it's one of one. I think it's a special place. And as a visiting player, I never really enjoyed New Orleans. But once I lived there and understood it and and meandered about the different neighborhoods in the city, um, I understood how special it was. Favorite place to play by far is New York City, the garden. Come on. You got to do that, you know, 41 times a year for a long time. Uh, yeah, the garden's yeah, a special was, place. It, it, there's no place there's like no it. Place like and I'll, I'll even bring it back to 2002 in our McDonald's game. That was the first time. I don't know if you had played in the garden before, but that was the first time that I had played in the garden. That was, that, that was my first yeah. time. And, and I knew then that that place was just different. And that was for a high school game. And, and so I played there a few times when I played for Duke, I, you know, early on in my NBA career, when I wasn't even really playing minutes, there was a couple games there where I got to play against the Knicks when I was with the magic and I performed well. So the garden for me has always just had a special place. There's 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 no other place like it. Moving from from one impactful coach to another, right? Who soon joining joining you in retirement life. Uh what what was your what was your emotions, right, when Coach K announced his retirement? Part of me has has been waiting on this moment for a few years, and every I think time, a lot of I think a yeah. lot of us will. Yeah. And 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 you've played for him, and um, you talk about someone who strives for personal excellence every day. I don't know how he, at seventy some years old, is still doing that. Yeah. that. That takes a toll on you. Um, he just loves the game so much. He loves coaching. He loves teaching. My so I had a call about ten days prior to the announcement. Uh, so I had a heads up. I knew it was coming. Um, my actual emotion was just happiness. I'm happy for him. Um, I hope that he, you know, has an amazing fucking garden in the next year or so. He, I know he's going to spend a lot of time. 
gardening. And I know, and I was going to say, I know he's going to spend a lot of time in his wine cellar opening up bottles. And I, I, you know, I know he's going to be involved in Duke, but I'm just happy for him. I'm happy that he gets to, to go out with a little bit of a farewell tour. Um, the position, the, the, the program will be in a great position with John and, uh, and, and coach can, you know, enjoy the rest of his life. As he should. Is there, is, there, is there a quick story that, you know, from, from your time at Duke about Coach K? A quick story. <laughs> what's, what's, a, what's a quick story about Coach K at your time, what's your time at Duke? I mean, there's so many stories and a few right off the bat come to mind, but I'll, I'll share one story. Coach is a, is a motivator. You know, he, yes, he, very, he very and, so. and sometimes he motivates in, in strange ways. And we were playing, we were coming off a very emotional game, I think on a Thursday night. And at Friday night, we met at Cameron in the locker room. We had an afternoon game uh, against Georgia Tech. And this is when they had Jarrett Jack and BJ Elder. They had a great team. And coach comes in and he starts playing the battle scene from Braveheart. This is Friday night before the game. Battle scene from Braveheart. I don't know if you remember this movie. Yeah, of course. But it's graphic. I mean, there's, yeah, there's people crazy. getting heads cut off, arms cut off, spears going in people's insides. Like it's a very great. And so we're all kind of <laughs> like, what's, what's going on here? Whatever. So then he gives it, gives a speech. We, we, we come in for uh, the meeting right before the game, 20 minutes on the clock, whatever it is. And we sit down, coach is not nowhere to be found. I didn't know this. I didn't really realize this till after the fact, but somebody had brought in a, a pot, a flower pot and set it next to the, the big screen. So... <laughs> They play the whole scene again. This is 20 minutes before the game. And all of a sudden, Coach runs in screaming like William Wallace and sticks his army saber, his his sword, into the flower pot like he's William Wallace. (laughs) That's just, I mean, I have, even before I was there, I have so many stories like that where it's just like he's setting a mood. He's setting a vibe. Um, He knew how to get you going. He knew how to push the buttons. I think that's what what we will, will, you know, you you use actually there with him at, at school at Duke. I, I had the opportunity to play with him, play for him uh, a couple of times with the USA team. That was his biggest, to me, that was his biggest attribute. It's not, you know, not just his his dedication, his commitment to the game and to players and just <clears throat> us as people first, but the way that he motivated you. And, and you said that, and that was in college, that <clears throat> he motivated us with the Olympics, and these are the best players in the world. And, it, you know, and we came into that situation not really knowing what to expect, you know, coming from a, a college coach, being able to coach 12 of the best players in the world. So <clears throat> he motivated everybody. He found a way how to get to you. He found a way how to push your buttons. He found what gets you going. And he did that to everybody. And each game, you know, he got everybody up and ready, up and going, mentally ready. Uh, so I can imagine just the toll that that took on him for so long, man. And I was with him for a couple years. He was with him for a couple years. But he's been doing it forever. Over 40 motivating years. Motivating these guys, man. Yeah, and, and, and it's Mello, I gotta, it's I gotta, to I got to blame you guys, though, for mellowing him out. <laughs> you guys. So he got the, the USA job fall of my senior year. So I finish, I finish up the following summers when he started with you guys. And I came back to a practice in like 09 or 2010. I can't remember what year it was. Gerald Henderson was on the team. And I watched the practice and I'm watching just sloppiness. And he, he's just over there. He's, you know, giving words of encouragement. There's no motherfucking. There's no, he's not kicking anybody out of practice, you know? 
And I walked, I'm like, dude, what happened? What changed? He's like, well, you know, USA basketball, it's just, I figured out a different way to talk to people. You know, when, I was, when I was there and even earlier, 90s, 80s, you know, he was like, there were days where he would challenge you. He would come at you like, and not just like, I'm going to speak words of, you know, encouragement and, and try to motivate you a certain way. No, he's coming for your neck. And yeah. uh, it was challenging, man. Like Duke, Duke turned me into a man and he was a big part of that. Let's talk about, we talk about college now. Let's, let's talk about, uh, about NIL, right? And, and I, I know uh, we, we both have <clears throat> some feelings about all of that. Like, and from your perspective, like, please paint us that picture of, of Duke, uh, J.J. Reddick, right? What would it be like for Duke J.J. Reddick with NIL deals today? I would have made seven, seven figures, especially my last two years. I would have made seven figures. You would have made seven figures. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe you did. Did you, no, did How did they pay you? Did they pay you in cash? Did they put it in your shoebox? When you would go in the locker room and get your Nike shoebox, would, would it be in there? Is that where they would pay you? Um, no, I, I wish they had, you know, crypto back then and something, Bitcoin or something back then. <laughs> I wish they had something back then. I would have got mine in Bitcoin back then. Uh, no, I, I, it's, first of all, the NIL stuff is, <clears throat> it's long overdue. It's long overdue. The, the governing body of the NCAA has barely budged with the rest of society. And so they put in all these amateur rules in the 1940s and 1950s when there weren't billion dollar TV contracts, when individual basketball programs weren't generating tens of millions of dollars a year. Um, and so they've, they got stuck in a tough spot where they have the mo one of the most profitable businesses you can have because they don't have to pay their labor. Meanwhile, you have schools, and this has happened a number of times times in football, who are paying fire a coach, fire another coach, hire a third coach. They're paying. They got three guys making between like four and six million dollars. Yep. The money's always been there. The money mm -hmm. has always been there. Um, I'm I'm glad that players can now use their name, their image, their likeness to to make some money. Um, I, I don't know what effect this will have on high level college football and high level division one men's basketball. And, and to a, a certain degree, of course, high level division one women's basketball as well. Cause there's a number of programs that are profitable with marquee players and star players like Paige Buker. She should, you know, hopefully she gets a bag this year. She's it's well-deserved. Um, so I, I, I think that the entire landscape is going to change over the next four or five years. And we may see a different version uh, of college basketball uh, a decade from now. Do you think the format would change in NCAA for college sports? Do you, and, and specifically basketball? I could see some level of um, basically super conferences or super leagues. But that's happening now in football. Yeah, I mean, I, I think with, uh, I think it was Texas and another school trying to join the SEC. I, I think that's probably the next step. Um, the athletic programs are going to try to monetize as much as possible. A lot of these schools and, and conferences already have their own networks and TV deals. Um, again, as long as the players can share in some of that uh, business, and they're not going to be directly paid from the school, of course, but as long as they can share in some of the, the business, then um, I have no problem with it. The, the interesting thing is, to me, is going to be the effect of the G League elite and overtime elite. The, the new high school league uh, where they're, they're coming out and they're paying 
players six figures at 16, 17, 18 years old. Um, are there going to be enough enticing business opportunities in college for players to want to go to do that for a year, or are they just going to skip it altogether? I am, I'm for it. I've always been for it, uh, especially understanding the business of college sports. Uh, I, I get it. I understand it. I think the time was way past due for, for, for athletes to just benefit, <clears throat> just off, <clears throat> excuse me, off their name, image, and likeness. And I don't know what it would have been like if I was in school and getting, getting NIL deals. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I can't imagine what that would have been like. So I, you know, I, I just don't think NCAA have it all figured out. yet, And I, I think that's going to take some time. It's, it's a lot of nuances in there that just need to be ironed out and, and figured out. Here's an interesting thought or an interesting dynamic that will certainly come up maybe this season, maybe over the next couple of seasons, but there's definitely going to be, uh, a scenario where a player through name image likeness is going to get paid more than the head coach. Now, maybe not at a school like Duke where coach is getting close to eight figures or whatever he's getting. I don't know, but it's certainly going to happen. And one of the reasons, um, I, I think it's hard for coaches to make the jump from college to the NBA is because NBA players uh, in general, make more, make more money than the coach. And it creates this weird uh, power dynamic between player and coach. We, what do we always say about the NBA? It's a player's league. Indeed. We do not say that about college basketball. We will. We will. I agree. <laughs> we will. We will. And, and, and soon, too. Yeah. Soon. Very soon. Switching gears a bit, man. Focusing on kind of just one of your many, you know, passions. I would, I would say, off the court, not on the court. Uh, like, what do you, what do you like most about the podcast space? What I like most is that it's long form. I like the fact that you can have a nuanced discussion about something, and it's still at times. I get frustrated at times where these aggregate sites take things out of context and put up a quote that one of my guests says or that I say on my podcast. But for the intelligent human, uh, you can go back and listen to the podcast. You can go back and read a script from the podcast and you can see the nuance in discussion. Uh, it's very hard to take something out of context. The other reason I like it is because as a player, we complain about a narrative. Uh, when you have your own podcast, or even if you're a frequent guest on a podcast, you control the narrative. And I think one of the most powerful moments that I had as a podcast host was after I got traded from New Orleans. And uh, there was about a four or five day gap from when I got traded to when the next week's pod was coming out. I was not with the Mavericks after I got traded because I had PRP done on my Achilles and I was rehabbing in New York. And so there wasn't an opportunity for me to go in front of the media until I joined the team. So I had this amazing platform to tell my side of the story. And I realized there was going to be a lot of backlash on it because people are uncomfortable with players doing that. Of course. But I was not going to let that opportunity pass at all. And 
that's one example and that's an extreme example. But I would say that's the most interesting thing to me is, is being able to control a narrative. You don't, like I, I laughed during my free, like six weeks into free agency. This is about a week before I retired. There was this article, I'm not gonna name the guy, but there's this article, he's a well-known NBA writer. He comes out, I talked to an exec, you know, JJ wants to go to the Lakers or the Nets. He's gonna do it in January. He's gonna wait around and see. And I'm like, I literally said that on my podcast 10 fucking days ago. <laughs> So I don't know who your Western <laughs> Conference executive is sources, but he probably listened to the pod. <laughs> right, absolutely. You probably had him on there one time. Exactly. <laughs> you the, the old man in the three is 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 known for for the drafts. Like it's, it's yes. y'all just known for y'all y'all damn drafts. Can you can you draft uh, your top five pod? Yes. Ooh, yes, I can. I can. I got to go with the host of What's in Your Glass, Carmelo Anthony, of course. Yes, <laughs> I can't, yes, yes, can't leave yes. you out of there. Um, yes. I would say DeMar DeRozan has been the most surprising guest I've had on from a player. Um, I did, did not know DeMar that well. We had talked to each other in games before, but never spent any time with him. Didn't know what to expect with him coming on the show. And he just opened up and answered some really difficult questions that I gave him in a very candid and honest way. I was really impressed with that. I, I enjoyed that conversation. Our boy CP, always love having him on the show. Um, I got to go with Bob Iger. Um, Colin Morikawa, uh, the, the golfer. And I'm going to say Drew Holiday too, because that's my guy as well. So I, I would say those, those are five of my favorite episodes we've had. You, I mean, honestly, you, you, you really have a great thing going with that with the podcast, and, and, and like, I've been on there before. And as you, as you know, uh, I've, I've told you this. I'm, I'm a fan. <clears throat> I, I was on it around this time, this time last year, I yep. think. Yep. I was on. It. Um, and it, it, it's, it's really a great show. I, I, I just want to say that to you. Thank you. For our listeners, uh, what, what is, what is something, what is something, ca what is something casual listeners, right? We, when we speak about casual listeners, what is something casual listeners may not understand about making the show how much work goes into it yes <laughs> <laughs> uh, like they think we can sit on here we, can, we just you know we, we we talk and shit and we just go back and forth and, but they don't understand the behind the scenes and how much work goes into it there's the legwork to get a show scheduled that's time um we hired a woman to run our company about this time last year last october she helps us with that, but some of that work I, I do myself. Um, there's that legwork. The prep of a great show requires hours, not 10 minutes or 15 minutes. I put a lot of thought. I, I do basically three prep sessions. I do one about four or five days out. I do one the day before, and then I do my final prep uh, basically an hour before the show. Because I want to I want to think about all the things that are potentially you know, interesting topics, but then I wanted to distill it down to that particular guest, make it thematic, really have a good time and, and try to find ways to make it, make it super interesting. Recording a podcast takes an hour. Uh, then you have to do the reads. Uh, there's, <laughs> I have six conversations a day on text message or email on one episode. We usually do, we, we do a weekly episode. Some weeks we do two. Uh, there's all the ad stuff. Uh, there's the, the we do we do a merch line. 
I, I joked the other day, I'm like, I'm retired. I'm as busy as I've ever been. <laughs> and all I'm doing is for doing a podcast. You're, you're, first of all, you're retired from basketball. I'm retired from basketball. Life still, life still has to go on. You're retired from basketball. Yeah. Now, I, I, let's, I, let's, not, let's not lose sight of that. I mean, I, I, don't know, I don't know your experience, but I know when I have somebody on the show, like Drew, let's say, my prep is different for him than it would be. Today, I had Travis Kelsey on. I've never met Travis. I don't play football. So my prep for Travis was a little more intense than it was for Drew. Um, but each guest requires a lot of prep. And I don't think people realize, I'm not just, I'm not just shooting the shit with people. I'm, I'm actually thinking about um, how I want to tell their story. And I think that's the, that's the big sort of theme of the show is like, how can we tell this guy's story in a very authentic way and hopefully make him or her comfortable enough that they'll loosen up and and maybe share some things that they wouldn't normally share on a media platform. See, that's how I feel about what's in your glass, right? It's, it's the conversations always get better on the second glass. And I, 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 I planned it. I designed it that way because as we know, we're avid wine drinkers and we know that when you, when you start to drink wine, you become a little bit more socially activated, right? You, you, you want to, have more conversations. You want to get deeper into topics. You want to, you just want to have a chill and learn something about the guest and, and hopefully the guests will learn something else about something different about the actual host. So for me, I, I always said that, man, the conversations always get better with, with, with the second glass of wine, especially, especially on, on what's in your glass. I have, so, a, well, I have a question, right? Do you, I haven't seen you take a sip of wine. Do you have, do you have wine in front of you? I do have wine in front of me. I do. I should have a fresh bottle. You know what happened, though? I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be honest to everybody. I opened the bottle, and it ain't where I wanted to be at. Okay. It's, I, opened it, I opened it too late. Uh, it's a 1985 uh, Chateau Hot Am I close? Am I close? Yeah, no. It's a, two, it's a 2000 Lynch Bodge. Okay. All right. So I didn't want to, you know, I, I I jumped up. I was taking a nap, taking my pregame nap before I got on here with you. And <laughs> oh, you have a game today? <laughs> you have a game today? No, no, this is my game right here. <laughs> oh, pregame nap. <laughs> this is my pregame nap. All right, so I took a pregame nap and op- opened it too late. Uh, so I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to, you know, kill my kill my taste buds like that's that. That's fine. You got to be delicate. You got to be delicate with those with those young with those young bottles. Just bringing it all back to, you know, we talk about what's in your glasses, bring, bring it all the way back to what's in your glass. Man, I have a few quick fine questions for you to close out. Um, the, the, the people and I, um, I guess like, we have to know, like, what's in your glass on special occasions? And, and we will get to it, but it doesn't have to be labeled specifically. Uh, but what's in, your, what's in your go-to? What's your go-to or what's in your glass when uh, you're on vacation? Vacation? Uh, it just depends on the setting. I would say a special occasion wine for me is Domaine du Jacques, which is um, a producer in Burgundy. Um, also, just full transparency, not the most expensive producer in, in, in Burgundy, though some of his Grand Cru uh, wines, uh, Jeremy's the, the winemaker, uh, some of their Grand Cru wines go for a lot of money. Um, but that's to, that to me is like a very special uh, bottle to open. They they make a wine called Malconsor, which is uh, the vineyard next to Latash, and it shares a lot of the same characteristics as Latash, and it trades at 
a tenth of the price most times, or a ninth of the price. Let's call it a ninth of the price. So you can you can have this amazing wine experience with these amazing spices and earth notes, and you know it's you're not you don't feel like you're like necessarily just killing your wallet, um, which sometimes with the do jack will do jack will kill your wallet. Yes, no, it's not so, a cheap wine. I'm not saying it's cheap. Yeah, it's not. Cheap. It will kill your wallet. Don't don't worry about that. Yeah. So everybody out there, the listeners, yeah, do Jack. I would. Make I, sure I always I always like to say this though, Melo, because anytime I mention a, a very expensive wine on a podcast, like I want to follow it up with a, a more everyday wine. I would say because I don't like to wor- use okay. the word cheap because cheap wine actually you should never drink cheap wine, and cheap wine can come yes. at twenty bucks or it can come at two hundred bucks. You shouldn't drink drink cheap wine. Right. You should drink wine that's made by passionate farmers. Uh, who enjoy the process of winemaking. And I, there's some amazing uh, Albarinos, which is a Spanish, it's uh, native to Portugal, but it's a, it's Northwest Spain next to Portugal. Albarino, it's a, it's a very specific grape to that region. It's a white wine. When I'm on vacation in the summer, I'm on a boat in Sag Harbor, whatever it may be, uh, you can find a great bottle for 18 bucks, to be honest with you. Um, it, so, yeah. and that's, and I'm, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you brought that up to that point because, a lot of times, only I, I speak about those the Dujacs of yeah. the world, the Latashes, the Tours, and things like that. And I really want people to understand that it's not just about the price point when it comes to wine. Um, I'm gonna give you a quick. I'm gonna give you a quick uh, story, real quick. I was in. I was in France. I was in Burgundy. And I was in Chateau de Pop, and to my, you know, my knowledge is like a spin cap. No. It's a no-go, right? The no-go in the wine. So I, 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 get to the, I get to the winery and the vineyard, and they're pouring out, they they twisting up the cap, and they pouring the, the bottle. And I'm sitting there like, nah. <laughs> to myself, like, hell no, no. And I had to ask the, I had to ask the winemaker, like, like, why are you guys opening that? Like, you guys are a very good vineyard. He was like, oh, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And that simple, that simple answer changed my whole perspective on drinking wine. I come back to the States and the first thing I did was go get a spin, you know, spin <laughs> bottle, uh, a spin cap. I just really wanted to see if it was, if it was going to taste the same in the original form over there or after it was shipped to sit, you know, sit on the ocean for right. a couple of days or a couple of weeks. It was actually really, really good. But I just had this this notion in my mind, like, no, I'm not drinking nothing with a spin cap, nothing that you could twist off a twist cap on, on wine. So that was just a quick story, man. That, that changed my whole perspective on on, on that. I, well, wine is an interesting passion to have because it's a rabbit hole that you go down, and it never ends because there's always something new to try. There's always something new to learn. Um, I. You know, I, I've I've gone to a few places in France and Italy. I would love to do uh, a trip where I drink wine in Georgia, not uh, the Southeast United States, but like Georgian wine. Yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> Georgian yeah. wine, or go to Greece and actually go to wineries in Greece. There, there's so many amazing wine regions all over the world, and obviously California and the United States, Bordeaux, Burgundy, Barolo. Uh, Chianti, all that stuff. Those regions sort of hold the the highest prestige, but there's amazing wine being made all over the world. And that's the fun part about it is being able to try new stuff. Um, I recently had 
uh, some funky pet nat wine from Jura, which is a region in France. It was pink uh, and it was sparkly, but it wasn't champagne. And I was, right. I was, and it smelled like uh, dirty socks, but I, I loved it. And it was just a cool, and it was like 28 bucks, you know, it was just a cool experience to have. Uh, and that's the, that's the fun thing about it. It's just trying new stuff and learning new stuff. What is, what, 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 if you had a, if you had a nice backyard oyster party, mm. what's in your glass? Definitely champagne. Definitely champagne. Okay. Um, okay. I would say if I'm like spoiling myself, I would say I'm having, uh, some Krug. Um, okay. Yeah. What vintage? Uh, what vintage? Man, I just la- last weekend I had a '96 and it was spectacular. Oh, the best! <laughs> yeah, the best. yeah, it One was spectacular. Best. Um, but I mean, I, there's, I, I was, I can't even remember the name. I have it on my phone, but um, my one of my friends owns a couple of restaurants in Brooklyn, and he had us, my wife and I, uh, there on Friday night, and he brought over some champagne. It was a rosé champagne by a bio, biodynamic farmer. I'd never heard of the thing before. Um, but it was, it was spectacular. It was amazing. Champagne is a great way to start a meal. And I love champagne with oysters. It's a great combo. Okay. Two more. You're with your old friends. You're with old friends, not your old friend, just old friends. Yeah. In age. What'd you drink? I mean, it doesn't have to be wine. I might have like a course light. <laughs> yeah. It'd be anything. No, you could be, it'd be anything. Uh, I mean, anything. I would say this. If I'm, if I'm having some drinks on a golf course, I'm probably having like a very light American beer, light Coors Light. Um, and I grew up in the mountains in Virginia. Uh, I was not a fancy person. I don't really consider myself to be fancy now, but I do have some, what some people would consider to be fancy things. But you have extensive fish buds. That's what you have. Yeah, but it, my palate has evolved. But like I can, I can hang out with anyone <laughs> under any circumstances and have a dozen chicken wings and a Coors Light. Like that's right. that's if it's if it's good people and good vibes, I'll do whatever. I don't I don't always have to have a, a glass of Dujac. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> what? what? Oh, okay. <clears throat> when you announced your retirement, what 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 was your glass? Well, so I waited. A few days. So I announced on two on I recorded on Monday. On Tuesday, it came out in the morning. I was on a train to Philly to record a podcast with Matisse Thibel. The very next day, um, I had uh, the live show in Brooklyn with a bunch of people. We did a live podcast, and then on Friday, I went to Sea Island with my family, with my kids, play some golf with another family, and I brought uh, three bottles down there. Um, and the two that were spectacular were the 96 Krug. And then I also brought a bottle of 1999, uh, Rousseau Chamberton. And oh, come on, man. yeah. And that was <laughs> for me, like, I love Latash. Latash was the first insane wine that I had. It changed my whole trajectory of how I thought about wine because it was truly like, it was a transcendent experience. But for me, Rousseau Chamberton is, is the the best wine. It's, it's the king of wines to me. And that was, I would say that was my retirement wine. It was a 99 Chambertin. There you have it. 99 Chambertin. JJ Reddick, his retirement announcement after he was on the train and went back to Philly and came back and 
you know, making that Brooklyn to Philly, you know, commute, which is, <laughs> I, I commend you for that. So I, I spent too I, much I time on the New Jersey that. Turnpike for two years. Too much time. I, yeah, I, I see that. I see that's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot, man. But I just, you know, JJ, man, I just want to say thank you, man, for, for joining me today. Uh, best of luck with everything uh, that you have going on right now. Uh, and, and just thank you, you know, to the, the audience for tuning in this week. Uh, again, please follow, uh, rate, review, what's in your glass on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, or wherever you listen to your podcast at. And you can also check out the video released each week on YouTube. Uh, JJ, I appreciate you, my brother, always. Enjoy that retirement life. Have a glass of Latash from me. Uh, I'll see. I'll see you on. I'll see you on the other side. Soon. Yeah, I'll see you soon. I'll be at one of your games this year, sitting uh, in the stands. All right. Absolutely. <laughs> I'll be. I'll, I'll bring. I'll bring an empty glass. I know you're gonna have something. I'll, I'll be there, but I'll be there. All right, my brother. 